0: We're talking Cartoon Network. We're here with Cartoon Network's first president, Betty Cohen. Betty, how are you?
1: I'm great. Thank you.
0: No problem. So it's so wild when somebody comes on here and then I hear thank you. You know, yes, I invited you on here, but I have to thank you, just like so many of the fans uh, that listen to the show and then have loved Cartoon Network. I have to thank you for giving all of us something Something to 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 watch, something to talk about with with our friends, something to discuss on more than just a, oh, this is an animated, this is an animated thing, or this is this, this is that. You know, you guys gave us our childhood. And I can never say thank you to anybody that comes on my show enough, but it kind of all started with you. And I gotta imagine it's been 30 years, like I said, since this network started. What has
1: kindergarten, right?
0: I was three years old. I just had a birthday a couple Saturdays ago. So oh, Okay. Uh,
1: Happy birthday.
0: Thank you. I, I was I was three years old when this network started. But uh like I said, this was my hands down my favorite network of all time. Um what was it like or what's it like now looking back 30 years ago, Cartoon Network starts? What are some of the first thoughts or emotions that elicit up here when you think about Cartoon Network? Oh
1: uh, well, I I want to it's, it's part of the first day also, so it's related, but I also want to say that it wasn't just me or even my team who yes. who gave you Cartoon Network. It was really pretty much the brainchild of Ted Turner. I mm-hmm. mean, um, he I always tip my hat to him because he um had the wisdom uh to see that somebody needed to buy the Hanna Barbera Studio. It was it was for sale um they had they were still creating things in kind of an older style and ted was always a big believer in owning a lot of content via libraries Because that in the early days was how cable networks general got started. There just wasn't enough money in the cable industry for original programming like there is today for not just cable, but streaming services. So the notion of having some 24-7 anything, in our case, cartoon network, meant you had to have a lot of cartoons or you were going to be in rerun hell like a little too soon. And so he bought it with the intention of starting a channel because that was what Turner Broadcasting was, was a cable channel company. And in the same way that he bought the MGM student library for start of tnt block uh not just the Hanna Barbera library but the entire Hanna Barbera studio because he also wanted the creation capability as well so uh, when i think back to the first day it was very exciting um it was not the first network i'd been involved in a launch of uh, because my career was a lot about doing on-air promotion uh you know i came up the ranks of promotion and marketing and then also programming that expressed you know, the sort of ethos of any particular brand. I'd been at Nickelodeon. I was moved to Atlanta to work uh, to, for the startup of TNT, uh, completely different assignments altogether, but similar in that it was about how do you repackage um, uh, library material? And in both places, in both cases, classic material, right? So old movies, old Hanna-Barbera Barbera cartoons. There was no Powerpuff Girls. There was no. There was nothing even in the budget for the first year or two to create original cartoons. It was all going to be how um, clever and profound uh, that we were going to be able to be at mining this existing library of Hanna-Barbera favorites and treating it with a contemporary reason to watch yeah. Hanna-Barbera, not just sort of like, oh, don't you miss the golden age of <laughs> Hanna-Barbera days. And um, and I also, by the way, i been used to that because um, when I was running uh, honor promotion, career, I actually ended up being the GM of TNT. And with the MGM library came Tom and Jerry cartoons. And for some reason, um, everything pre-1948 of the Looney Tunes somehow, which was Warner Brothers, and was in the MGM library for some reason and got split apart. So I had been programming and packaging cartoons on TNT um, but it was not the Hanna-Barbera ones. It was, uh, you know, Tom and Jerry and uh, really some of the best of the Looney Tunes. So for me, it was not, it was, uh, but this was the first time it was ever going to have a channel of its own. It was the first time that I was actually going to run something rather than be like head of marketing or, you know, first lieutenant, which is what a GM is. And I do have to say that um, before I even went to Turner, when I was working at Nickelodeon, and I was also involved in the launch of Nick at Night, which was another um, you know uh, what do you do with a bunch of old tv shows versus yeah. old cartoons but i remember at nickelodeon we would all laugh at like you know because we saw how great anything animated did on nickelodeon and people would go you know it'd be crazy great they have a 24-hour like cartoon network and people would laugh and go oh it sounds like a riot but no there would never be a way of like amassing enough stuff nobody actually believed there would ever be enough cartoons to start an all cartoon network and until ted Ted kind of looked at his assets and went, oh, well, we got Tom and Jerry and we got some Looney Tunes and yeah, I'm just gonna buy Hanna-Barbera and uh, there's a Cartoon Network to be made here. So I do want to give him credit for having the initial um, you know, pocketbook and um, uh, courage because you know some of these acquisitions can be expensive, although Hanna-Barbera was incredibly less so. So, um, so at the first day, but what was so funny was that we wanted to do everything. You know, we were creating a cartoon world, and we always knew that 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 was it wasn't going to be positioned as just a kids network, um, because I knew from how many adults watched all these Looney Tunes and MGM cartoons, there was a 18 plus audience on TNT because we weren't programming it as a kids network, um, and so uh, so we you know we, we were, there was a lot of thought. is like what does it mean to actually, you know, have an all cartoon world? What was, you know, how would its laws of gravity and laws of all sorts of things be a, a good match for what cartoons were? And then, of course, we wanted to uh, have the launch be sort of cartoonish. Mm-hmm. And I remember uh, there was a lot of toing and froing ing around. Uh, so, you know, what should we do? Um, we had to make a lot of noise, literally and figuratively, because at that moment in time, that year, the whole cable industry uh, had been re-regulated, had gotten some new regulations where it was the, basically cable operators are told that every time you launch a new network, no, you don't get to pass along another whatever the subscription fee is to your customers. You know, like And so people were being much more choosy about whether to launch new channels. And consequently um, Cartoon Network and also the Sci-Fi Channel was launching around the same time. And we were sort of the victims of this timing of initially not a lot of cable operators were gonna put on anything new, no matter how interesting it was. Um, and uh, even with the cloud of turn of broadcasting and sort of saying, well, no, you must take the Cartoon Network because otherwise we won't give you a good deal on CNN or something like that. That kind of uh, Ted Turner, again, was in the middle of those decisions and said, no, I don't want I don't want to give any discounts on CNN or TNT to get Cartoon Network on. Cartoon Network is going to get on by its own merits and people are going to watch it and they're going to have to like these cable operators are going to have to roll over at some point. And I don't care if we don't have a lot of people at the beginning, because I know it's going to get somewhere ultimately. And so he had that, you know, initial uh, fire in his belly and so did all of us who worked at Cartoon Network. So the point I'm making is that we were launching to only like 2 million homes. And at that time there were, you know, there was probably mm, 70 million homes to be had in the cable universe. So this was a small start. And one of the things that uh, we had to pay a lot of attention to on launch day was like, how can we make national news? Because the idea of a Cartoon Network launching was sort of bigger than like the story of like, well, how many homes you know, are we actually yeah. launching in? Um, and so we were doing everything we could to create national news. Um, and the, is I'm not the person who creates national news by being on camera. We wanted Ted Turner uh, to be the person. And um, <laughs> there's a, there's was a weird long story about um, my first attempt was uh, our marketing person had put me up to it and I thought I'd win it but I didn't which was we first wanted Ted to actually be on camera on the channel starting out as his live action self and then ultimately gradually becoming animated himself as he welcomed everybody to the world of all animation and he, um, he ultimately didn't want to do that he didn't want to be on the network but we did get him to agree to be on a launch event that we did for the network that we were able to have right you know in front of our building all of the turn employees were invited to the salon for the launch cartoon network and we did sort of like an a very cartoony thing we created one of those acme you know things where you set off an explosion by pushing down the plunger and so we were going to tell we were head to head, you know sort of we had a plunger on stage that was very cartoony. We had all of these custom characters, of so the Hanna Barbera characters, and we are doing everything we could to basically do uh, something that a lot of photographers, if we could get it to the AP, it might go out everywhere because it was not the story of Betty and her team getting, you know, a channel put together, but Ted Turner was launching, you know, his all-cartoon channel in a way that would would have happened in an Acme, you know, Acme plunger in and in a Looney Tune type of cartoon. And so there was a countdown and everybody, the crowd that was there was counting down. We had a parade through part of Atlanta with um They even had like the kind of balloon characters that you'd see maybe in Thanksgiving Day Parade. Um, And so we had the Hanna-Barbera characters like floating, you know, up the street. We did as much noise as we could for a visual thing right in Atlanta and then fed the videos out and the photos out. Um, And uh, if I remember correctly, I'm trying to remember because it's sort of a blur to me, but I think the explosion didn't do it. It didn't make the. Uh, it didn't go off as well as we liked. There were supposed to be a lot of streamers and things, and there, there might have been a malfunction, but then that felt cartoony to all of us <laughs> as well. You know, it's like, oh, that was supposed to happen that way. Um, we had we, we had the media buyers from our, our biggest client. We were already, you know, very much, there was both Mattel, but Hasbro was probably our biggest buyer right from the beginning. Um, so we, we had a lot of people there who we kind of had to impress, and Ted was... There for all of it, um, and talk to people afterwards. And uh, I think my one of my more surreal favorite moments of launch day was that um, costume characters. You know, the when people dress up in those costumes, mm-hmm. um, they're not. There's a whole set of rules for them. Like they're they're not supposed to talk because uh, they don't have you know people in the costume don't have the right voices of the characters. And Hannah Barberi had this whole like strict guidelines that I got sent. You know, when we were just getting all this stuff sent to us from the studio. And so costume characters were not allowed to talk. If a kid hits you, you can't hit them back. I mean, there's like this whole set of rules. Just in case, Julian, you ever want to be a, a costume character.
0: <laughs> do. I'm a character now, but yes, I want to be a costume character.
1: <laughs> well, the funniest thing for me is the characters were all standing. They're all lined up waiting for the beginning of this whole event to take place. And Ted was just hanging out. And <laughs> nobody had told Ted like that they're not allowed to talk. So he was going up to all the characters trying to, you know be fun and <laughs> anyway he hey Uncle Perry, how are you they were just standing there and he kept going and, no, and ted is not used to you know anyone not answering him <laughs> so uh so then I, <laughs> I was standing nearby and he kind of looked at me and he kind of went he, he looked at me and went quiet bunch aren't they <laughs> And I had to pull them aside and say they're they're not, they're not being rude they uh they're just not allowed to talk. Oh, you're
0: so much nicer of a person. I. I was like, yeah, I don't know what it is. They won't talk to me either. I would have kept it going. <laughs>
1: That's fantastic. Well, um, so, yeah, I just you know you don't want to pretend like you had to like keep them you know focused on the job at hand. I didn't want them kind of feeling at all snubbed by costume characters because we really needed them to push the plunger, but it was a big day, and and, and uh, it's fun to launch cable networks in general, and this was a particularly great one because, uh, you know, we all had our monitors on in our office, and, um, you know, we were feeding from Atlanta for that that first day, and um, a lot of satellite dishes, and they're on turn of Broadcasting in Atlanta, and, uh, you know, it's sort of weird to have it to be nothing, and then suddenly something, uh, and uh, so that was a lot of, that was the uh, harrowing day. <laughs> of of launching the Cartoon Network was for me you know I don't know what everybody else was up to but I was sort of keeping my eye on Ted and also Bill and Joe Bill Hanna and Joe Barbera were in attendance and it might have been for me I think it was probably the last time I was able to be together with them uh, because Bill Bill died not that long maybe a couple of years into Cartoon Network and Joe was around like uh, quite a long time yeah Uh, yeah, um, and one one of the, I think there was a party. There was something going on, some event around the launch where I ended up in a car with Bill and Joe, you know, and we hired them, car and driver, and I went with them to just be, accompany them to whatever the event was. And they were a riot. They were sort of like an old married couple who were barely speaking to each other. <laughs> but, uh, but that's, uh, that's... That was them, at least on that day. And, I, and I'll always remember, I feel really uh, fortunate beyond belief that I was able to get to know both of them. Mm-hmm. And I actually spent a fair amount of time on every time I went out to LA to check in on Cartoon Network Studio or whatever, I would tr- um, um, I would try and have lunch or something with Joe. And he was amazing because he was probably pushing 90 easily at that moment late 80s to the 90s and you know he was pitching me shows over lunch on like drawing Tom and Jerry on napkins Um, he still wanted to be in the game and he was uh, an inspiration to me because I'm both a business person and a creative person but you know we should all be coming up with new cartoon ideas when we're 85 right
2: do you like Nickelodeon? Do you like whiskey or whiskey cocktails? Then you should hang out with us. I'm Ty. I'm Sean. And we run Whiskey Lodeon the podcast. Ty, what is this podcast about? It's where we drink whiskey or whiskey cocktails while re-watching the old school Nickelodeon shows we loved growing up. And let's be honest, we go on a lot of tangents. So many tangents. Are we on a tangent right now? Yeah, I think so. Oh my gosh, well, we gotta get back. We are covering Rugrats, Hey Arnold, Are You Afraid of the Dark, All the Golden greats of Nickelodeon. And these shows give us so much joy. And we wanna bring you that same joy so find us wherever you get your podcast at Whiskey Lodi. And I got to cut you off right now because we honestly cannot afford any more ad space. And it really just kind of has to end right.
0: Absolutely, man. And I had, uh, I had Van Partible on. He was the creator of Johnny Bravo. Obviously, you know who know. he is. Yeah. Um, but, uh, he had some really cool, uh, I'm not going to call him Joe. I'm not going to call him Bill. I'm going to call him Mr. Barbera, Mr. Hannah, man. So he had some, he, 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 he affectionately called him Mr. B. So he was like, we had Mr. B and he was, <clears throat> we were talking about the Scooby-Doo and Johnny Bravo crossover. Cause that's one of my favorite episodes of anything ever. And for a lot of the fans, a lot of the fans wanted to know about that specific episode when I had Van on and, uh, he would tell us these great stories. Uh, he was like, yeah, we just wanted Mr. B to come in and uh, be like a consultant and then his his part of the studio got the bill for having Mr. Barbera come over and be a consultant and he was like well shit we can't afford him <laughs> so yeah it was it, it's really cool hearing these stories and thank you for telling us that story because we had a lot of questions that asked what was like what was your first day like or what was that initial run when Cartoon Network started so uh, I think you really gave the fans really what they were asking for in on that one um, but we're going to jump you know, around here just a little bit. We got about 15 minutes before we're rotating the fans questions. Uh, So I want to throw some names out there and I want to get your first thought or first emotion is, um, so we've got Genndy, we've got Craig, we've got Van, I can already start to see you smile. We've got Danny Antonucci, we've got John Dilworth, we've got, you know, Maxwell Adams, I believe he came out a little bit later, but he was still there. Um, you've got David Fease. When you hear these names of these gentlemen, right, what's the first thought that comes to your mind? Genius. Yeah.
1: We started. with I don't. I have to admit, some of the names later on the list I don't yes. recall all that well. But uh, when you said Gendy mm-hmm. and Craig, and I, I don't want to miss. Those were the first two on your list, and I, I don't want to make everybody else on the list feel you know less important. But they were responsible for you know two of the first originals, and um, and Gendy was. Uh, he is a genius, you know, Absolutely. and I love Gandhi's story. You know, he came from Russia and grew up, I think, in Chicago, if I'm not yeah. mistaken. Yeah. And he learned his English watching, you know, ODP. cartoons. Yeah. Yeah. And he struck me. Um, well, I'm, you've you've already interviewed Fred Seibert, so you know a bit about the Cartoon mm-hmm. cartoons. Yeah, he's Lord. coming
0: back on in a couple of weeks because his episode will drop after your episode. We're going to talk heavy on Cartoon Network. But yeah, I, I love Fred May, He's such a great dude
1: yeah and so he um with the whole process of doing the the world premiere tunes which was you know trying to find younger fresher talent and then but they might not be so experienced so then we would surround them with all the experienced crafts people you know who've been doing stuff for years at Hanna Barbera, but they were not going to be the sources of cool new ideas. But they certainly could teach the Gendys and the Craigs, who were not long out of you know Cal. Uh, Craig was out of Cal Arts, I don't remember.
0: Yeah, Gendy was, he was out of Cal Arts too. Yeah, him, Rob Renzetti, a lot of them, Miles Thompson, uh, Lou Romano, a lot of those guys came out of the Cal Arts program.
1: Yeah. Well, and I remember Craig in particular because the, the pilot for Powerpuff Girls, or at least his pitch for Powerpuff Girls, might not have been the first episode, but his pitch was uh his uh senior thesis film was powerful.
0: Those, yeah
1: so yeah, that's right it was woopass it wasn't powerful but um so I, I think the thing that struck me about both of them and i, I mentioned i focusing on Gendy because the very first original cartoon made for cartoon network under that whole thing that was completed was Gendy's um dexter's lab um and it was the episode i think where they were they uh accidentally turn themselves into animals and then they have to turn themselves back to humans again before the their mom comes up to, like, innocently ask, you know, how are they doing and will they please come to dinner. And I actually I have a cell on, you can't see it because it's uh, on another wall, but one of the cells I have is a scene of, of Genndy and, um, sorry, not of Gendi but of uh, Dexter and Deedee, um, climbing up the staircase or they're on the stairs like hustling to get make come back down looking normal again but I think you know when you sat, when we saw a lot of people pitching uh because we we would see a lot for everyone that we would move forward with um and a lot of people are really good at doing gags and they think that making you know fun animation is just living from gag to gag but what struck me about Genndy, uh was that he really was a filmmaker like he was you know he was an animator. And that was his milieu, but he actually understood storytelling. He understood timing. He understood so many things that were much more, I guess, sophisticated. Yeah. yeah, and yeah. Experience. Um, and so all that stuff around the timing and the scenes and building the story. and And actually what Fred and I were both looking for in all these people was not. And the whole reason of doing things as one short at a time is that when you're dealing with new talent, you have no no clue, really, as to whether they can sustain a 30-minute Scooby-Doo episode or something, you know? And, you know, at that time, people were still t- thinking of TV shows as twenty minutes, you know, half hours with two minutes of commercial breaks. And, you know, there were these things that people were almost a little too strict about. And, but we were, from day one, because we were dealing with, not so much the Hanna-Barbera shows, but um, Looney Tunes and the Tom and Jerry's, and, you know, things were short subjects from day one. And so we had to cobble together, show, you know, hours of time. Uh, in television, that were not half hour shows. They weren't even 15 minute shows. They tended to be about seven, eight minutes. And so the assignment for World Premier Tunes was, you know, we don't want a whole half hour. We want We want you to, you know, sell us a, the notion of a certain character and a certain premise and just make one cartoon and then we'll decide after we test it and run them, you know, next to other one offs on the channel. That was how we were going to figure out which things to move forward with. So, Gendy. I remember thinking, Gendy Gen- 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 really had his chops at a very early age. And then I also smile with Gendy because I always remember uh, he came to Atlanta to pitch Samurai Jack. Because mm. I remember he was sitting in my office in Atlanta, and it, he was so well at that point, he was beyond like having to try out. You know, <laughs> with a single cartoon, he had um, he you know developed Samurai Jack in its entirety. And but he came with like. Uh, he did this really slow reveal. He it was very basic, you know. I think he had a notebook and a notebook cover, and he just started telling. There was no piece of paper in front of him. He just it was a good picture. He were, he told me this story about this play, time and place, and this guy. His name is. Samurai Jack and the name just struck me as very funny you know um and the sort of incongruity of it and then I said so but uh, what is what is this world and what does he look like and he was just so funny he did this thing well sort of a piece of cardboard and his notebook and he did like the slow reveal of like that's the first time I saw Samurai Jack's face and what he looked like and the color pattern of the uh, you know of the world that Samurai Jack was in and there was something just so compelling um, and I think self-assured, obviously, about Gendy. That first Samurai Jack just struck me as like, you know, I need to know more about that show just from the title. And also that um, this. I'll just always remember the slow reveal and the, and the grin on Gendy's face, because I think he was just loving doing the pitch, you know, and um, and he knew that he had something great. He had that confidence. And so uh, I like Gendy a lot. Um, I I got to know him best because he was one of the earliest, uh, you know, people we worked with. Um, And uh, Craig McCracken, um, I know know him less well, but of course I was impressed by, you know, that this was his college thesis film and yet he had really good ideas. The neat thing about him also was that, well, he would fight for, you know, certain ideas. He also like, he showed up for, we were testing some of these one-offs, these early like pilots, with kids and i remember my team telling me that craig went to a focus group with with us because we were telling him that when in his pilot the the puff girls were almost like almost like they were glued together like they were just always as a threesome literally they flew together and and he hadn't done a lot of development of them as individual three really different sisters Mm -hmm. characters And he didn't see the need for it, you know, for some reason. And so we, but we were hearing from the kids as we showed them just his pilot out of curiosity. They were like, well, who are the girls, especially girls? They're like, well, who is she and why is she, you know, and what's the blonde haired one? What is she like? You know, they, Kids, if you're gonna do a show, particularly one with any kind of longevity, you better have a really kind of differentiated view of all three characters, even if they do a lot of things together. Yeah. And if they and if you want something to continue season after season, they're not always gonna do everything together. One one show might be more about something that happens to Buttercup, you know, or something like that. Mm-hmm. And so um what was cool was that he had the humility and the curiosity, not not every creator does, to sort of balance, you know, feeling fierce about some of what he wanted. And then, but actually taking in what he saw and going, I guess, I guess we need to develop them as three different characters, you know? And it wasn't him giving in just to, you know, make people happy. He embraced the need for it. Yeah. Um, that's what I remember about the, the early stages of Powerpuff Girls.
0: Yeah. So, you know, I've said this on so many of my episodes. Gendy is to me what Tex Avery is to him, what Chuck Jones is to him, what Hannah you know mr hannah and mr barbera are so many people uh if there was a mount rushmore of animators he's on it craig's on it for sure mark davis is on it legendary disney animator um you know so those those two guys they're so special when it comes to like i saw myself in dexter right because it was a red-headed kid and being a redheaded kid growing up you didn't see other than chucky and carrot top and it was the polar opposites those are the two people you didn't want to be compared to as a redheaded kid uh but seeing myself in dexter and i'm i'm not a smart kid i barely barely got through high school it just wasn't for me um but seeing myself in these characters I, it, it absolutely made me love cartoon network because of what gendy did i mean gendy's been there since i was a little kid i've i've learned what the UPA style was because of folks like Gundy because of folks like Craig. And then that, that got turned into a deeper love for the UPA style. I didn't know I loved UPA until I started talking to the Craig McCrackens, the Robert and the Robert Alvarez's and the Randy Myers and the Linda Semensky specifically, because we talked probably last time I had her on uh, a couple months back, we, we talked like 30 plus minutes just on UPA alone. And then she would break down just all of the different characteristics and she's such a phenomenal person like there's a couple people in this since I've done this podcast that I can reach out to that I know I'm going to get a straight answer I'm not going to get I'm not going to get drug around I'm not going to really get lied to they're just going to give me what the answer is and her Robert Alvarez Randy Myers those three people that I call back on to all the time they answer any dumb question I've ever asked I'm pretty sure they've been asked these questions on so many occasions but like I said those two those two men in particular those two people in particular Gendy and Craig are so special when it comes to to mine and so many others' uh, lives. Um, but as we're going to rotate into the fans' questions, uh, this this portion has been really fun. Obviously, we only talked a little bit here uh, about that, but I would love to have you. I know you've got a busy schedule, but I'd love to have you back on anytime you want to come back on. I'd love to have you back on, and we can go a little bit deeper into into maybe day two of Betty. How about that? <laughs> so. Um, sure yeah, but, uh, like I said, this is the to
1: well, thing- late start, so I'm serious I, you know I'll stay till like five oh, fifty and yeah, I have yeah. to yeah, yeah, you're
0: perfectly you're perfectly fine. Shit happens uh, as as <laughs> I, had, I had that t-shirt one time shit happens. Um, but, like I said, this is one of my favorite parts. And ladies and gentlemen, I was not expecting. I told Betty this before we hit record. two hundred and forty seven questions were asked. A lot of these questions, and not a lot. I'd probably say a good, 15 to 20% were the same question. Um, a lot of the questions I was, like I said, I was just not expecting the level. So we will never be able to get to this many questions. Um, so we're going to ask as many as we possibly can. So first thought, Betty, that comes to your mind whenever these questions come up, um, and then we'll go from there. But before we ask the first question, somebody wrote in that's a friend of yours. He wanted to say, hi, Betty. And that was Jerry Beck, the legendary Jerry Beck. He wanted to say, hi, Betty. Um oh, yeah, he's such a great dude, man. He's oh, he's forgotten more. I say it all the time. He's forgotten more about animation than I'll ever be able to retain. Such a solid dude. Uh, Frankie B ninety six wants to know. This is gonna put you on the spot, Betty. So you can say pass if you don't want to answer this one. But what's your favorite nineties Cartoon Network show?
1: Nineties Cartoon Network show that would be all of our Okay, um, I, don't I can... let's see. Okay series episode just uh anything right Um, anything
0: what was your favorite one that you looked forward to watching hmm so you had yeah, dexter's lab you had johnny bravo you had power puffers
1: i it's gonna sound like a cop-out because i love certain things for different reasons
3: Mm
1: -hmm. i guess you know people are surprised because i of course loved what powerpuff girls stand stood yes. for and you know that it really broke some ground and that it, all of that but i i guess i have to say that the one that i personally watched you know rewatched the most of it would probably be dexter's lab
0: yeah yeah that's it that's
1: yeah, a- I, I don't want to slight to any of them because i on any given day i will you know i'm as proud of powerpuff girls i you know when i was telling you about the that image uh, from the news show you know, the girl was working so hard to make sure the Powerpuff Girls looked right. You know? <laughs> and so I, you know, it's, it's, it shifts over time. I've met so many girls who said that Powerpuff Girls, like they grew up with that, remembering it in a different way, uh, for different reasons than, than, than the boys do. Um, and so, uh, I also, I remember thinking that I really, you know, you asked for one, so I, I don't know if you want me to stop, but I also yeah, go for it. Go for it uh because you mentioned john Dilworth, i think and the first the the first episode of courage the cowardly dog i really liked a lot yeah um and uh johnny bravo you know some of the earlier efforts um i just johnny bravo cracked me up cow and chicken cracked me up but i would say if i if you said that you can only take one you know cartoon network show to a desert island or something with you i think i would probably take dexter's lab
0: yeah, I'm rewatching it for a uh, for something special I'm working on now. Uh, so it's been a blast revisiting it 20 years later. I just revisited Samurai Jack uh, last year when uh, my wife gave birth to our second son. Um, spoiler alert, we got another one on the way. So we just found out she's six weeks pregnant. So thank you. So this will be baby number three um, due in ju- uh, not July, <laughs> excuse me, uh, April of next year. Um no.
1: People just to, to this day, even all these years, I guess, 30 years later, whenever people say they're expecting a, a, a baby or just had a baby, I always I still go another Cartoon Network viewer.
0: <laughs> Absolutely. Because the entire last year, uh, when, when we first brought Cooper home, that's my, that's the, uh, the youngest one right now. Um, you know, obviously you've had kids, I'm sure, you know, you get in the shower, your husband takes the baby or you get in there, they get in the shower, you take the baby. So you're switching off. And when my wife would get in the shower, or she would take a bath. It was, uh, I would watch an episode of Samurai Jack. And in the ten, 10, days that I took off from work or 14 days that I took off from work, I watched the entire series because it was just, I didn't have anything else to do. We were just homebodies because, you know, we didn't really want to go anywhere. Um, especially with a new baby, with all of the shit that's going on right now, you don't want to take a chance. So I just stayed home and just watched Samurai Jack. When they would sleep, I would watch Samurai Jack. And i could not and did not appreciate that show at 12 years old the way i appreciate that show now it is a masterpiece it is a perfect show from start to finish um so yeah i i i can i can agree to going back and just binging anything Gendy. um brylock wants to know um were there any shows that were running during your era that almost didn't make it so if we take that first initial run of Dexter's Lab, Powerpuff Girls, Johnny Bravo, is there any one, uh, one of those shows that almost didn't make it? We've heard the story about Craig and the focus groups, and then he had to retool it a couple times. Um, and then it finally got made. But is was there any of the other ones from that original release that might have almost not didn't make it?
1: I'm trying to remember because there I, I have gaps. you know, once we start doing a lot of things, I have certain gaps. I don't. I, I do think the Powerpuff Girls had that challenge originally, um, uh, but I I don't think that it never came close to not making it. It just as yeah. you said needs more. Um, hmm. There might have been, but, you know, who would probably be your better answer for that would be either is Linda or, have you had, have you had Mike Lazo do this at all yet? I have
0: not. Uh, I hear he's very hard to get to. So maybe you could put in a good word for us. Maybe, maybe, that'll, maybe that would help. Um, yeah. But yeah, he, he's a guy I've been chasing for two years now, trying to get on. He's very, uh, very quiet, if you will. Yeah, so, I so.
1: might, might know also because she was close to the, you know, what, because if I didn't like something or something was in trouble, I'm sure Mike would have worked with her yeah. to try and sort it out. Yeah. Okay. But I, nothing comes to mind. Uh, but that doesn't mean there wasn't one.
0: Yeah. Um, this one's really cool. I, I really dug this question. Um And my handwriting sucks. I apologize if I mispronounce your name. I just, I probably should really try harder to write write a lot better. But uh, I think it's JS Goodman. Um, When did Cartoon Network consider Space Ghost Coast to Coast a success? Looking at it in hindsight, I always thought it was considered a success. But did you guys see it a little differently? Did it take a little while for maybe the executives or anybody to think that, oh, this is something? I feel like this is what catapulted the network right off the bat i mean like i said when
1: i Uh, was beautiful i think it got off to sort of humble beginning i mean i uh uh, space ghost is an interesting story and you know i'm I'm having trouble a lot of people think it launched you know adult swim but there was a gap in time when between um space ghost uh, between Lazo bringing me space ghost and um and the ability to get the whole company on board and the financing to do adult swim i forget how many years but space coast coast to coast was initially very much a marketing almost a marketing project yeah. for again cartoon network you know how we talked about it, we were always trying to get uh, national attention and um, trying you know how do we get our characters talked about more in the zeitgeist um uh, and i guess you know the way we could probably track the initial date for space ghost is that it was developed in a moment when let me back up and say you know because we were like the world's first cartoon network and i said you know we were going to be always just like very much uh you know the first place where the where you were living in a cartoon world yeah. um and there was also part of our sort of ironic and sense of humor about the cartoon network was that it was sort of like it practiced all the other conventions of tv networks or genres of programming or like space ghost was you know a talk show genre spoof right Mm -hmm. um but um and so we were always trying to do like, well, what was a cartoon? What would the cartoon network version of something? You know, whether it was a stunt or how we celebrate Mother's Day or how we, you know, there were always things other networks were doing, particularly cable networks would do stunts, which was, you know, lining up a spec like Shark Week is a stunt, yes. or you know, yes. uh, we did a lot of stunts on TNT because we were having to make sense of this old library and you know you know be around maybe an actor or you know or and um so we we were doing a lot of things that a normal tv channel would do but part of the archness and sort of sort of the wackiness of our sense of humor was that it was always going to have a weird twist to it and so the the reason space Ghost people started coming up with it there was two reasons one was in the media culture at that time Letterman and Leno. Let's see. Letterman went to CBS, I think, from NBC, and there was there was a lot of talk about Leno and Letterman were going to be in fierce competition, um, against each other because one of them had moved to the other network, and, um, people were just writing about it a lot. It was somehow a big deal, um, and uh, and so we had this like, well, how, what, you know, if 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 uh, the hosts of and of late, of late night talk shows was what everyone was talking about, talking about, well, what would Cartoon Network's late night talk show? You know, who are we going <laughs> to throw into the ring um, to, you know, be like everyone else's television network, except we were a Cartoon Network. So there was a bit of that going on. And then there was also, as we wanted to market things, it was hard to, you know, you can't just put cartoon characters. You can't have, there was no point in bringing the costume characters to like cable shows or trade shows or, you know, country fairs or whatever. It was hard for us to show up in the real world because we weren't about the real world at all. And so I think the other cool thing about Space Ghost was that um, it was, you know, we were taking a character out of context, literally out of their initial context and rotoscoping them into this whole talk show idea. And then the idea that our talk show hosts, unlike Leno and... You know, and Letterman was from another planet and there was something sort of great about, you know, just communically great about having this talk show host be clueless and yes. and yet with all of the sort of self aggrandizing ego that space ghost has so um, so the it was born out of. Um, wanting to have somebody who could he actually we did radio promotions with him we didn't after he got well known we were sometimes doing things where if we were coming to a town or something we were doing some special event for a cable operator we could have literally the person who played space ghost voice on our show would get interviewed by the local radio and he would just be in character you know without even the animation so he could be on radio we could um you know uh it got to a point where um I, I think it took a little while for people to want to appear on it like what is this thing like we who is this and so you know uh, talk shows in general are only as good as the guests you're able to book and i remember for a little while it was really like who is this person why should we care but so the repartee had to be funny in and of itself and i do remember Lazo telling me that it was like um they started going after alternative what alternative rock and like the interesting music world. For some reason, musicians who also at that time were, their world was changing and they needed publicity and they were trying to build followings of their own. And somehow um, Laszlo's team and their booker, you know, started with, kind of more, not cult followings, but, you know, sort of more indie rock people and music people. And we started to get around the labels that this was kind of a cool thing to do. And so I think initially it started with, you know, you had to cajole people to do it. And then as people were seeing how interesting and crazy the interviews were and the music labels were seeing like that this is another interesting context, or whatever, for their bands, uh people started approaching us. And I don't I don't exactly remember how long that took, but I think and and then it went beyond music to uh other people. Um one of my favorite episodes uh was having Matt Graining, you know, yeah. uh be interviewed by Space Ghost, because that was like, wow, you know, we really arrived. But I think that I wouldn't say that was the first successful moment. But I would say that if you talk to Lazo and the people uh, who were working on Space Ghost, they would probably tell you that success started feeling palpable when that that change happened from begging people to be on it and mm. having to explain what the show was to turning people down you know, or being pitched, <laughs> you know, being pitched to be on Space Ghost. I mean, to me, that was success because it was making their lives easier, and it was a it was a thing. We also had a really excellent PR person at that time, and, and she was trolling um, a lot of different publications that were more a Space Ghost mentality. You know, almost before Adult Swim, we were looking for who are these adult or older fans that we were getting for Space Ghost that we weren't getting, you know, for Scooby Doo, for example. And um, I remember there was, I think it was. Can't remember if it was Vanny Fair or details, but one of those kind of you know pop culture magazines that were never just for kids or never just about cable TV. And there they would do these profiles on people on stars. And um they asked if they could do I think she pitched it out, but we it was like again when space goes coast, coast to coast was becoming a cultural phenomenon. Yeah. Was, we were able to get sort of this totally like normally you know um leading edge pop culture publication uh read by many people not just cartoon network fans they they did an interview with space ghosts like they did a profile you know all this yeah, so all funny. the same crazy questions that you know a normal person would ask like what's the book on your nightstand and <laughs> what's you know <laughs> what was the last movie you saw and so it was sort of funny because the pr person went oh what have she's you know what have we gotten ourselves into we have to answer these questions and so she had to sit down with space ghost writers Um, So figure out like what would Space Ghost say in answer to these questions. But I remember thinking it was was perfect, you know, like he lived in the minds of the writers and creators of the show so much that they could write a profile, you know, for him for a magazine that wasn't even a cartoon fanzine at all, but treating him as a celebrity. (laughs) in his own right like the idea that space ghost would even have a book that he's reading on his bedside table just sort of cracked me up to begin with but i I, to the short answer to your question is i couldn't tell you exactly how long because i don't have the memory of all the years and how long everything took but i do remember that i I remember Lazo saying this is this is so great people are calling us now to be on the show
0: it's always a good thing when people start calling you Uh, excuse me uh, where are we at? Oh, this one's cool. And I'm not even going to try to read the name. You know who wrote this one in. Um, There's a bunch of different letters in there for a name. How would you usually deal with pitch ideas when they are offered? Uh, how would you know which ones to pick?
1: Well, it depends on if you're talking about the world premiere tunes one, or if we, you know, after a certain point, you know, um, the reputation of the creator, like again, D, his pitch process became different. As I mentioned with Samurai yeah. Jack, but if you're talking about all of the the ones that started as World Premiere Tunes, um, so the studio and this was Fred's team, you know, they were doing a lot of the just sort of like uh, looking around for who they should be approaching, and I think they went first to the Cal Arts because it made a lot of sense. But they were looking everywhere; they were getting recommendations, um, and so it would start with um, Hannah Barbera, putting the wheels in motion and doing a lot of the vetting before I ever or even Linda, you know, uh, would see things, they would go out and just sort of find people, find things, get people oriented, um, have them do some initials, you know, character design and storyboards. And so that would, it would go through a process at Hanna-Barbera to get Winnow down a little bit first, and then, Linda and Lazo and I, we were all based in Atlanta, so we'd all fly out to LA at the same time and set aside a couple days of uh, sitting in a conference room with Fred and some of the other, uh, you know, people on Fred's team and people would come in and pitch us their storyboard Um, and there'd be a whole day's worth of it and and some were, uh, and then so it was actually a collaborative process. Of, you know, um, Fred liked it and I like it, was, you know, certain things stood out so much, you know, because everyone was like it was a slam dunk and each meeting, each pitch had a different um ending to it. Like some people, you know, we'd caucus and go, we'd say thank you and goodbye to everybody. But it'd be like green was, you know, green was like, we really want to work, at least work more with that person. If not, green light the show right away. And yellow was like, uh, some potential here. Not sure if the person has what it takes to see it through, but let's have someone work with that person. And then, you know, yellow and then, you know, red was sort of, this is not, it's either not original or it's, yeah. you know, not funny enough, or it was just a series of gags. And so, but, so the pitch, people had to convince us that there was a compelling character, both visually and from a premise standpoint, um, and that the the storyboard, you know, actually had a story or some sort of payoff, because some things were really you know, uh, there are a lot of people who do animation who re- couldn't tell you a story particularly yeah. well. So, we had, you know, we had multiple filters, you know, is the character interesting? Is the drawing interesting? Do they have a sense of storytelling? Um, and um, then it's like, and what, how much support were they going to require you know were they really kind of just a writer or are they going to be somebody who can direct something from beginning to end because that was one of the things that was different about working for Hanna-Barbera and Cartoon Network than maybe some of the other animation studios in town is that we were always promising to be creator-driven creator-led and that it wasn't like Genndy Gen- Gen- was going to somehow lose control of a show because he was only allowed to come in at the beginning, and then you know, ink and paint was gonna, you know, it was gonna go department by department, yeah. not necessarily with the producer, and the creator, you know, having a lot of say. So all the way across, some studios were actually operating that way. You know, there was like the creators and then the producers, and uh, Fred, and you know, I think Fred did a lot of work as did Lazo and Linda of like sort of what would make people really want to work more for Cartoon Network and then in a way that was consistent with our philosophy of creator driven, creator driven, creator led. And we developed, you know, reputation for taking chances on people. We also learned that some of our competitors, you know, were sometimes optioning things and then optioning them just to like keep them from other, you know, networks, but never actually making the show. Right. And that was annoying to people. So we thought, how do we get more people to, pitch us. And one of the things was also a, some sort of commitment to give you your stuff back, like to make a decision,
3: mm-hmm. you
1: know, within a shorter amount of time than maybe our competitors, just to make us more creator-friendly to approach in the first place. So um, so the process was that there, uh, you know, the pitch was in front of Fred and, and Hannah Barbera executives, Mike, Linda, and me, um, whoever was at, uh, running the actual studio from a logistics standpoint, Brian. Like him, I'm sorry. Like I'm blanking, blanking on the. Yeah. The, Brian Miller. Uh, Brian Miller. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> um. Uh. Was you know somebody we brought in to actually operationalize the Cartoon Network studio, um, or the process. I believe
0: so. I'm. I've actually got. I've been talking to him the last couple of days, so he's going to come on too. We're going to try to schedule it. Uh, to coincide. I'm going to try to treat October all for Cartoon Network. So, ladies and gentlemen, you'll find out. Uh, if. How many Cartoon Network episodes we'll see uh, from the podcast this month? We'll end it with this one. Uh, we'll, we'll, this will be the last one we ask. Uh, so there's a lot of folks that write in that watch this show that are animators. A lot of folks that I've had on actually are fans of the show too. But a lot of folks are actually trying to break in. So whenever we can give somebody a little bit of help, either you know with uh, some advice or anything like that, I, I really like being able to do this. Uh, Cartoon Boy wanted to know, what do you think is the key to pitching an animated series?
1: Um, well, number one, it depends on who you're pitching it to.
0: Mm-hmm. Know your audience.
1: Oh, to our audience. okay. <laughs> no, no,
0: no, 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 I'm saying i'm I'm a summarize it for the guy. Know your audience is the first step, Cartoon Boy. So what was the next step?
1: Well, not just know your audience, but uh, so if you know your audience, you sort of have to also think about uh, who you're pitching to. You know does it feel like a Disney project or a Cartoon Network project or a Nickelodeon project? because those are really quite different. Um, and so, you know, I think one of the things is if you want to produce for, I'm just going to use, use Cartoon Network just for starters, um, if you want to produce for Cartoon Network, you know, you've hopefully watched a lot of Cartoon Network and you've seen what the other originals are and um, and would never want you to imitate any of the other originals, but there is a, uh, at least the, the ones we were doing in the 90s, we had a really specific intention with them, which is that we had, we had in the Hanna-Barbera library and we could license out of japan or wherever a lot of the action adventure cartoons and what we really wanted were things that were more like what would the um tw- late 20th early 21st century looney tune be like like what is you know um how could cartoon network become the cartoon network studios be sort of like to cartoon network and turner and time warner would my was to Warner Brothers you know yeah. a place where like really creative people had the freedom to do things that were sort of fun always funny and crazy we didn't need action I mean there was action of course in Powerpuff Girls and Samurai yeah. but they were not that traditional action adventure superhero-y cartoon and so um so I would say that you know we were going for humor We're going for like memorable characters, like Gendy's a character. He didn't exist before. You know, the Powerpuff Girls didn't exist before. Uh, Johnny Bravo's a little bit Elvisy, but very much his own guy, you know, Um, and uh, Cow and Chicken, totally different. We were looking for original characters and comedic formats. Um, uh, And that's different from um, something based on the coolest toy. You know or something we we were not into power we were not the power ranger channel you know we were not um you know we we're just like we were not and god knows you know that our sponsors constantly wanted us to do you know things based on their merchandise and all that stuff and we just you know we were also dealing with federal trade commission thoughts and all that kind of things and we mostly really wanted to own you know, is we wanted to also to create assets for at the time turner you know or time warner ultimately and then I knows, I guess it's now, where are we now? Discovery. Um, but um, so if you're going to have an asset that you can license and you can make movies about and you can do things with, you kind of have to own them. They're going to be your original characters in the same way that Hanna-Barbera Studio owns you know, Scooby-Doo and all of that. And so the uh, just the business model for doing original programming meant like why would we you know if we wanted some anime from japan we're not in the anime business license it you know do 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 what you want to do with it package it into the tsunami you know and have it play a role in your schedule mm-hmm. but in terms of your future business you need to own the rights to the characters and, the, and they need to be memorable enough and they need to have some longevity um of, because until you you know you don't have a hit show in animation until you've gone certainly more than 12 episodes. I mean, I think the Flintstones are close to, oh, are there hundred episodes of the yeah. Flintstones? Yeah. You know, and so you can't build a franchise. You can't like create merchandise or do all those, you know, back endy type things to help pay reimburse you for the costs of making those shows. Unless you've created a success show that's people, a character who can, you know, who doesn't get boring, mm-hmm. you know, it's 26, 32, you know, 36 episodes in. So, you have to have creators and a story writing group that, you know, where something you could picture, you could picture Ed, Ed and Eddie doing things from now till Kingdom Come. You could picture, you know, uh, Dexter and Dee Dee, you know, because uh, there's no limit to the amount of weird experiments and, you know, things that could happen. Um, and so we were looking for, you know, what, uh, and also the drawing in in an animation sense because I also went to, you know I worked at TNT in Lifetime and I also also done non animated development where it's very much you know you're looking at a script and maybe it hasn't even been cast yet you know so but for animation you definitely want to have somebody who draws well mm-hmm. where you take one look at that character and my you know my that test was like, I need to see more. Like, I must see more of this character. And you can start picturing them in all sorts of, you know, scenarios and all sorts of relationships. Also, you know, the the Dexter Dee relationship, the relationship between the three girls and then all the villains and, you know, um, and so it's sort of, um, you know, to, I think a lot of people think you just have to know how to draw to mm-hmm. be a good animator. And uh, you could probably draw for other people, but you're not going to be the lead Person. You're not going to be the one who creates the series unless you can really picture the world, picture the characters, picture their motivations. It's like writing a play, you know, it's like anything else. You kind of have to understand storytelling and all of that and be a good you know, person who can. Uh, I mean, if you're not a great artist yourself, you better know how to direct others. And you and all the great, you know, all the animators were people who really could sort of draw out sort of what they had in mind. And that's, you know, I was reading storyboards, not scripts. You know, and so you had to be able to uh, tell the story visually, but but know a lot about the craft of storytelling and character development and overcoming obstacles and all of those things that are true of any great
3: story.
0: Absolutely. And uh, before we let you go, if you could sum up Cartoon Network into one word, one sentence for your tenure at Cartoon Network, what would that one word or one sentence be?
1: Um... You know, it's interesting. I, I remember having to write the vision statement. We were, the Turner was into writing vision statements, and we would <laughs> at a certain time of the year. And the time of the year they did it, I I'd been in the job for barely a month, you know, or two months, and we'd barely even hired a staff. And it's like, you must turn in your vision statement. And uh I remember very intentionally. This isn't the disc- this probably isn't the answer to like if I could sum it up, but it's a starting point, which is I remember writing like knowing had come from Nickelodeon. And I knew that this wasn't going to be Nickelodeon. It wasn't going to be just about kids rights or even just for kids. And so I was like, I always find that if you don't define your goal, if you define your mission or your vision too small at the beginning, you never get bigger than that. And so I, I started off with, you know, to be the world's leading and anim- you know, leading supplier of animated entertainment, and, and it had an, enter, animated entertainment. It wasn't just saying kids. Um, world leader was because uh, I was already told at the beginning that even though it didn't happen right away, that this was going to be a global channel that was going to be distributed around the world, you know, and leadership mattered to, to me because, uh, and for me, leadership, you know, when, when you first asked the question, I was going to say, you uh, innovation, there there was something break, had to be something breakthrough about what we were doing because um, the whole notion of there being a 24 seven place that was all cartoons, only cartoons, had to be sort of worthy of, the. Uh, you know, the sum had to be worthy of all the parts, you know, it had to be worthy of Warner Brothers talent. It had to be worthy of Bill and Joe. It had to be worthy of Genndy and Craig and Van, you know, and, um, and so, because cart- to me, cartoons are you know such purely invented things that Cartoon Network needed to be a place that invented or reinvented um, appreciation for the animated art form, actually, and cartoons specifically. Um, and so that meant that was like we were always holding ourselves to a higher standard of. You know, because there could have been a whole other Cartoon Network that was not as clever, that was not as insightful, you know, that was not as caring. You know, some of their early stunts for Cartoon Network were only people who really knew a lot about cartoons could have come up with some of those ideas. Like I remember there was one about they did a whole week of like uh, how Yogi Bear over time (laughs) became somewhat off model, like the actual model (laughs) for it kept changing from one season to the next. Um, And that's sort of very inside and we wouldn't make all of our stunts be that inside. Mm -hmm. But that's like, that's a nod to the people who love cartoons, right? And that was a big, you you could do a Cartoon Network that was just say kids, have fun, escape, you know, big, funny colors. But we had like, we want, if you're gonna be the first all Cartoon Network, you better be experts. better be passionate fans you better know a lot about cartoons you've got to celebrate them in like the craziest way because cartoons themselves are crazy um there has to be willing suspension of disbelief there has to be you know and and we were um we did create our our core values at one point and we even did those in a canister that had um you know the core values all depicted by different characters Mm -hmm. um but one of the key things was that creativity was king if i had to say you know that phrase i think it was that we we uh succeeded by being more creative with the most one of the most purely creative entertainment forms there is right yeah and uh and that mattered to us a lot you know we because because there are a lot of boring you know i boy when i went to some of these international conferences to like you know vip junior and those things and we're being pitched cartoons from all over the world, you know, and some of them were, I was amazed at how like non-entertaining a lot of cartoons can be, you yes. know, they just lacked a certain energy or they lacked, or they were maybe not about trying to do cartoons. They were doing some sort of beautiful animation that was lovely and nice and depicted some really great children's book. And I was like, beautiful, like find a place for that, but probably it won't be on the cartoon. Board. <laughs> cause we want, we were standing for irreverence, you know and uh, cause if you look at sort of what were the Looney Tunes about, they were irreverent, you know, they were not talking down to kids. They weren't even originally made for kids. You know, there was no children's television to make the Looney Tunes for because it didn't exist yet, right? So there was a different mentality around uh, questioning authority, you know, uh, things that, you know, things happen in cartoons that don't happen anywhere else. You know, and so so Creativity as King was not only our creative marching orders, but it also was actually a business advantage for us because we were not first to launch Nickelodeon got out, you know, started first. Nicktoons, I think, started right around when we launched, you know, Disney had been around forever. And um, and it was sort of like, well, how do you get a leg up on the competition? Well your promo, your promotions are more interesting, you know, or they're funny or they're more outrageous. And then you get, you know, we our marketing for the first Thanksgiving that we were on, you know, we launched in October. October, and we had to deal right away with uh, how do we get Hasbro and or Mattel really interested in us on the biggest shopping day of the year, which is the day after Thanksgiving. Mm -hmm. And we planned like a whole stunt and we offered to whichever one, you know, bid first and Hasbro bid first, which was you're going to get to own every commercial block um, on the day after Thanksgiving. What's that worth to you? That's... (laughs) that's an inventive approach to doing yeah, thinking about your schedule thinking about sort of you know the idea that We were always doing things like, well, you know, what's crazy? Lazo would come up with like, what's crazy? How about if we ran only one character for 24 hours? You know, we blow it not all the time, but we would blow out certain things. And it was all just to sort of emphasize that we were the fool's first and only 24-hour all cartoon network. So what becomes possible, you know, when you are doing an all all a 24-hour a day, seven-day a week cartoon network? Well. You mix things up sometimes. You do a whole day of characters. You break the rules. You, you know, offer every single commercial slot to one to a sponsor who had enough different products that they could actually make use of that, right? You, um, our drive. I I loved our. our, We did a um, local thing called Cartoon Network Dive in Theater, and that was again taking a business problem of like there were certain cities in the U.S. that were before Directv came on. And uh, DirecTV sort of blanketed the country. And once you had to deal with them, then they became your in-market competitor to the cable operator who wasn't carrying it. Because then you could say, we're on DirecTV. If you really want this, you got to go to DirecTV. And no cable operator wanted to be in that in that position. So that would drive. So we'd go into cities like Atlanta, where different parts of Atlanta, one part had you know, carried Cartoon Network, and the other part was maybe a different cable operator, right? And so we would make noise in that city. We would do things with the people who carried us. And we introduced the world premiere tunes by having these pool parties that would happen. It was during the summer. It was like, I think, on a Friday night. And we would give away radio tickets um, uh, and got the radio stations to, to give away the tickets and letting everyone know. And it was a family thing thing we ordered in pizza we made inner tubes and all these sort of pool accessories in the shapes of dexter and all the new characters and then it seems like well why would you do that that's not going to you can only have so many people like come to a pool party but we were on the radio offering tickets the local media came and took pictures so you know and the next thing we knew like the cable operator who wasn't carrying us was seeing cartoon network on the front page of the sunday you know newspaper and the other cable operator was getting all the credit for it. So so we would do like um crazy shit, you know, like literally inviting people to swim around in a pool. And when the sun went down, there was a screen at the end of the pool and the kids could watch the new cartoons um from while floating around in an inner tube. That was in the shape of you know one of the characters so that's the kind of creativity is king thing the sponsors loved it the cable operators loved it rpr people loved it the newspapers yeah. loved it the yeah. families loved it the pizza parlor loved it <laughs> it's sort of like and i i do think that you know that kind of innovation i call it all boats rise you know like i always look for ideas that were gonna serve the most masters because we were young, we had to get advertised. Advertisers didn't wanna advertise unless you had distribute. And you were in a lot of homes. The people who were putting you on in homes wouldn't necessarily budge unless they felt like the families were gonna be like missing them and they were gonna go to a different like DirecTV or something else, you know. The creators, you know, creativity was king because they were gonna get to direct their cartoons with the help of Hanna-Barbera, you know, um, Craft experts, but it was going to get to be as close to their vision as you know we could. We would lot. We of course gave a lot of feedback, and I'm sure Linda can tell you you know how things had to be shaped and things like that. But it was you know we were we valued creativity as a um, business advantage and as a creative advantage, um, and that was all about um, feeling again like we were going to need to be as creative as inventive as breakthrough as, you know, the Looney Tunes were in their day and, um, all of the creators for Cartoon Network were in our days, you know,
0: beautiful. And that's a fantastic way to wrap it up. Uh, you know, thank you for everything you've done. Thank you for putting this helping bring this network. Obviously not only does it take a village to raise a child, but it really took a village to make this happen. And you guys raised a lot of child, a lot of children, were raised through Cartoon Network, and myself and so many fans around the world, we can't thank you and everybody that has been a part of our lives for the last 30 years enough. So Betty, from the bottom of my heart and from everybody else, man, thank you for your contributions to pushing animation and creativity is always king at Cartoon Network.
1: You're very welcome, and it was, uh, I think I speak for everybody at Cartoon Network, but we were only as happy as the people that uh, followed us and found us compelling.
0: Beautiful, and we all did. Well, there's no better way to end this than She's Been Betty, I've Been Julian, this has been the What's In My Head podcast, and this has been another piece and a really big piece of your childhood. Good night. Hey, guys, it's Julian. Before we roll into the audio clips you all submitted, I just wanted to say thank you. I loved hearing what Cartoon Network meant to all of you. So what does Cartoon Network mean to me? Simply put, it meant fun. I feel so damn lucky to have grown up at the time I did. I got to experience some of the greatest cartoons of all time. Cartoons like Dexter's Lab and Powerpuff Girls, Cow and Chicken and Courage the Cowardly Dog, Johnny Bravo and Ed, Ed and Eddie, Samurai Jack and the Grim Adventures of Billy and Mandy, Foster's Home for Imaginary Friends and the Codename Kids Next Door, and oh, so damn more. Thank you for making it fun to be a kid and giving us a piece of our childhood each every week.
1: Hello, this is
2: Double D Edwards speaking. I'd just like to say thank you to all the fine folk at Cartoon Network for so many fond memories over the years, especially Cartoon, Cartoon Fridays. Oh, we had such fun. Anyway, take care, everyone, and
1: great work.
0: What does Cartoon Network mean to me? Opportunity. The shows have been entertaining, but what really resonates with me is how the people at the network were willing to take a chance on a lot of talented individuals, not just young up-and-comers, but veterans who had been in the industry for a long time, and gave them the opportunity to express their creativity and make an impact. And because they were willing to take that chance, these people got to make history happen.
4: Cartoon Network is absolutely the best channel ever. It got me into great anime classics like Tenshi Muyu and Yuyasha, oh, Cowboy Bebop, and then even the newer ones like One Piece and Dot Hack Sign, and as those went on. And then the great 90s and early 2000s cartoons such as Cow and Chicken, Johnny Bravo, Ed and Eddie, Grim Adventures of Billy and Mandy, and even the misadventures of Flapjack and Codenames and Kids Next Door. Cartoon Network will forever be the best. Ah, Cartoon Network con los cartoon cartoons es un destello de alegría, es una tarde con los amigos. Es mucho más que eso. Y pues
3: por eso quiero agradecerle a toda la programación desde el Coraje el perro cobarde, Johnny Bravo, Samurai Jack y otros personajes. Muchas gracias. This is a uh, jazz squad dog. I just want to say thank you. For uh, to uh, Betty Cohen, uh, for uh, her amazing actor presidency and letting us have uh, the amazing shows that we had and moments. Uh, one of the best, uh, probably, probably, probably one of the best parents. Probably one of the best parents I have had As, as a young child I, right. So I honestly Appreciate everything you have done And uh, I got one question uh, If you look at the uh, shows now And show back then like, Would you change anything Or just be like eh. You end your course You know Hmm <laughs> Uh, th- Thank you, Julian, for letting me do this. Aww. See ya!
5: I guess for me, living in the UK, Cartoon Network allowed me the chance to fully soak up on the history of American-produced cartoons from the likes of Warner Brothers, Hanna-Barbera, and MGM Shorts. And by the time it was making its own original content, it cemented my love for the channel at such a young age. But what's never ceased to amaze me is what the studio is willing to make and the creative team behind it. And for that, may it continue for as long as network television is willing to still be a thing in this world.
4: Cardo Network actually helped inspire me to become an animator myself. Everyone that worked on these shows, animators, voice actors, even Foley artists, will truly have no idea just the depth of how much joy they've brought to people's lives That can't be measured by anything on this planet.
5: To me, Echo represents the fun of childhood a person should never forget. It reminds me that cartoons aren't just for little kids, it's for kids of all ages
0: and generations. What Cartoon Network meant to me as a kid was just a way to bond with my mom, who loved watching cartoons, and she got me into a lot of my favorite childhood shows. We both had a dark sense of humor, so we loved Billy and Mandy, and we loved the violence and edginess of Powerpuff Girls, and now these shows just live in my brain as a source of comfort and a reminder of a more carefree time in my life.
3: Hola a todos, me llamo Rafael, conocido como Ed Network. Quiero felicitar a Cartoon Network por haber cumplido 30 años <risa> Bravo, bravo. Cartoon Network tiene un gran significado para mí. Marcó mi infancia cuando apenas tenía dos años de edad. Y sigue marcando mi juventud. Hasta el día de hoy me ha llenado de alegría, de emoción, de felicidad, de muchas risas. Y que incluso en algunos capítulos me hicieron llorar. <risa> bueno. Quiero mandar un saludo a toda la gente que nos está aquí escuchando. Que venga la fiesta y a celebrar esos 30 años Cartoon Network. Sigue así. Ahí me guardan una, pas- una rebanadita de pastel. Cuídense.
5: Cartoon Network for me was the reason why I would uh, turn on the TV and watch uh, the funniest shows ever, like Bugs Bunny, Tom and Jerry, but also Dexter Laboratory. Becoming a teenager, I grew up with Gumball, Adventure Time, Regular Show and other amazing shows. It uh, really affected everything for me. Today I'm I'm graduating from Bachelor Animator and I think it's my passion for Cartoon Network. It gave me uh, the idea of becoming a cartoonist myself.
4: A lot can be said about Cartoon Network of the past, present, and future, but Cartoon Network at its best represents a way f- to push animation as an art form in a medium that probably doesn't encourage it in the first place. What this channel has
5: meant to me is that um, they made a lot of interesting cartoons all over the years, and I'm so grateful that I have
2: I have watched them, and I don't regret it at all. Cartoon Network has gave me all the cartoons that I loved and has taught me the meaning of friendship and what fun is all about. It's what gave me a great sense of humor, a gift of confidence, an awesome childhood, and the thought of knowing that anything is possible. Without Cartoon Network, my childhood would never be the same. Thank you Cartoon Network for all the fun memories. Cartoon Network inspired my very first fan fiction I used to write about Toonami and how Tom what Tom did behind the scenes and I used to write comics about Swayzak and and I I love Space Ghost. It inspired how I interacted with people I would do the in my pants game like Box Vulcan from Harvey Birdman and just really Help me interact in life. A lot of like, me- messages from lessons from all the shows like the Powerpuff Girls taught me about equal rights and stuff. So thank you, Betty Cohen, for doing that, even though most of my mem- memories come from the Jim Samples era. Yay, Cartoon
1: Network. Yay, Ed Ed it was great working on that show for 10 years. Wouldn't happen without their belief in Danny Antonucci's vision. I'm forever grateful.
2: Cartoon Network was my childhood growing up. We had Ed, Ed and Eddie, Foster's Home for Imaginary Friends, Kids Next Door, Powerpuff Girls, so many more. I think it shaped who I wanted to be, what career I wanted to go down, what I wanted to create, and uh, yeah, it's been a huge part of who I am ever since.
0: I was born in 1990, so Cartoon Network was a huge part of my childhood. I enjoyed many aspects of the channel, from the shows to the bumpers. When watching these things, it
5: just made me forget about the stresses in my life. Cartoon Network has become so ingrained within me
0: that it's part of who I am.
4: What Cartoon Network meant for me was... It gave me a true appreciation of animation. Not only did you see new shows like Ed and Eddy and the Powerpuff Girls, but you also got shows like Toonheads and The Popeye Show, which taught you the history of animation.
3: <laughs> Hi,
5: Betty! Matthew Castle here. I just want to take a moment to really thank you for everything that you've ever done in Cartoon Network. Though All those shows were just, well, amazing, uh, to say the least. And... I just, it, it helped really make me the kind of person that I am today. You know, I, I, I'm i now getting into voiceover work because of all these amazing shows. So, really, just thank you so much for everything, and I hope that you're doing well. Bye-bye. When someone asks me, what do I feel about Cartoon Network, I always immediately start thinking about all those amazing shows I used to watch, like Ed, Ed and Eddie, Courage the Cowardly Dog, The Powerpuff Girls, Dexter's Lab, Johnny Bravo. And it always brought me and my family together. So thank you so much Cartoon Network for everything that you've done for me. You also helped shape me into the kind of person that I am that feels motivated to doing voiceover. So thank you so much for making my childhood.
2: Cartoon Network was a great place to work. We spent a lot of time laughing and we were certain we were making the best shows with the greatest creators. So I feel really lucky I got to work at Cartoon Network when it was so much fun. Cartoon Network means the world to me.
5: Growing up with the channel during my time, it inspired me to be a cartoonist. And I give so much thanks to Betty Cohen, Ted Turner, Mike Laszlo, and others responsible for this groundbreaking network. Happy 30th anniversary, Cartoon Network.
4: What does Cartoon Network mean to me? Cartoon Network is the home of much nostalgia in my heart. It's staying up late watching the Dragon Ball Z Saiyan on tsunami in the summer before school starts. It's mama had a chicken, mama had a cow, dad was proud, he didn't care how. Adult me does have questions about that though. It's learning how to spell laboratory and say cheese omelet in French from Dexter. It's watching Looney Tunes reruns when nothing else was on. It's Titans Go! From the original cartoon, not the new one. It's waiting into the last day of the cartoon, cartoon giveaways back around 1999. Not being able to get the Johnny Bravo boogie board because I called after the phone lines closed. And so much more. Although I still think about that boogie board to this day.
2: Cartoon Network really gave me a space where I could realize that being weird was just another way of being unique. I learned that being brave doesn't mean not being afraid, but to act regardless, from courage to cowardly dog. From Ed, Ed, and Eddie, I understood the value of friendship and the sense of community that comes with it. And then you get into the more mature shows like Samurai Jack or the shows on Toonami where not only could I be entertained, but I could also have my views challenged that I could learn and grow and be better. I have so much to be grateful for from Cartoon Network. I just want to say thank you.